0: Well, and I was thinking about what to do for um, our retreat, it's kind of traditional to do um, so-called practical messages, how to be a man and all that. But I think that returning to the gospel is really the most practical thing we can do. And what we're looking at is the fact that there are only two kinds of men. And ultimately for us, it's my hope that every person sitting here right now is a believer in Jesus Christ and has been regenerated, has been made into a new creation but it's my hope that as we look at um, the, the way of life today, last night in the dark we looked at the way of death, today in the light we'll look at the way of life, but really all of us here, just out of curiosity, how many people here represent an example that you must set to somebody in your home? There we go. And your family And those around you will not rise above the level of your spirituality. They won't rise above the level of your faith in Christ. If they do, it's a great disappointment to them and it's a hardship. They need to see you leading. And so understanding a family that has led uh, from the man's standpoint over a course of generations, I think is important. So turn to Genesis 4. We'll continue where we left off in verse 25. Last night we looked at the way of Cain. The rejection of God, the family of rebels, family of men trying to fill their days, avoiding the curse of God upon their lives. Just trying to entertain themselves, they're proud in their rebellion. This is the type of man that God promised to judge. Well, we're going to see a family now that the very first quality, the very first thing that describes them is that they were calling upon the name of the Lord. Completely different. So we'll begin in verse 25 of chapter 4. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them. And named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived a hundred and thirty years he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were eight hundred years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years, and he died. And then we get a list, the the genealogy of Seth. Seth lived a hundred and five years, he fathered Enosh after He fathered Enosh, Uh, Enosh lived 807 years, had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Seth were 912 years. Then Enosh fathered Kenan, and Kenan fathered Mahalalel, and Mahalalel, he fathered Jared, and Jared fathered Enoch. And then Enoch lived, uh, when Jared lived 800 years, he fathered Enoch. And then Enoch lived 65 years, relatively young to be a father in that day and age. He fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, had other sons and daughters. And famously, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. That is the first rapture, by the way. When Methuselah lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. And then Lamech fathered a son and called his name Noah, and, cu- and uh, saying out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So this is the line of Seth. What I want to do very simply is just give you some introductory thoughts. It's just a, a super interesting text. And so purely for your interest and in mine, I want to just give you some thoughts about it. And then I want to just show you six qualities of the line of Seth. They're so different than Cain and really proves our point that there are two radically different paths. There's not an in-between, sort of pseudo-Christian kind of committed. Either you're in Christ and you're all in, or you're out of Christ and you're all out. There's not an in-between quality. So first we'll look at some introductory thoughts and then six qualities of the line of Seth. So the first thought is, why give this genealogy? I mean, these are the things that we tend to skip when you get to Bible reading and you think, wow, i got to plow through this and pronounce these super long names. Why not just say, Seth's kids were a lot different than Cain's? Why not just say that? Well, it doesn't list all the children, just a select child from each generation or possibly from some generations. It wasn't uncommon in genealogies to skip generations. There's no rule that says you had to have every generation in there. I lean toward this particular genealogy not skipping generations simply because they give the specific ages when the next child is born. Um, But it doesn't make any difference either way. It represents qualities of these families, as we're going to see. What did God promise Adam and Eve? A big, broad promise that her seed, her offspring, would save them from their sin. Then we get more specific. What did God promise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? that through their seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So there's a little bit more specificity. Whether God promised Judah, the son of Jacob in Genesis 49, that his descendant would rule the earth forever. So we get super specific now. Down the line, God gave a promise to David that his descendant, not only just Judah's, but specifically the Judahite David, his descendant would occupy the throne of Israel for all time. So you have all these people in the line of Seth, in Luke chapter 3, a genealogy is listed beginning with Jesus. And who do you think's in that list? David and Judah, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Noah, Lamech, Methuselah, Enoch, Jared, Mahalalel, Kenan, Enosh, Seth, and Adam. This is the chosen line. This is the, the different line. So Jesus Christ wasn't just some guy who showed up and claimed to be Messiah. He had the bloodline to prove it, going all the way back through the chosen line. Another question is why give the ages? Why does it matter that Seth lived 105 years before he became the father of of Enosh? I think there's two reasons for this. First of all, the the detail shows the accuracy of recording the bloodline of Christ. That you could take Luke chapter 3 and compare it to Genesis 5 and see these are the same guys and there was there was specificity here that when God divinely ordained that a promised seed would come and save us from our sin, he provides written proof that he's done this. But the other reason also is that you look at the genealogy of Cain in chapter 4, and it just says this guy had this guy, this guy had this guy, this guy had this guy. There's more specificity in the line of Seth. And I think that's just showing the Lord's favor that this is the line that has, uh, has uh, worshipped me. And they're, these are old guys. They're living a long time. And just as a matter of interest, remember that the Earth is still in a pre-flood stage. There's some sort of mechanism that is still filtering out ultraviolet radiation, cosmic rays. We know that those cause genetic defects of all kinds and greatly increases aging. Um, almost certainly there was a, a much higher degree of hyperbaric pressure as well. Uh, hyperbaric pressure treatment is used to combat disease and is shown to promote good health all around. Why is that? Because the air is full of this really good stuff called oxygen. We don't have much of it today. I mean we have enough to live on but if you have much more oxygen then you have greater health. The ancient Babylonians and every ancient culture had myths of men living hundreds of years, some even thousands of years. So this isn't um, this isn't unusual. Every major culture has a cultural memory of men living just immense amounts of time. Here's a note of interest as well. Verse five of chapter five is the very first obituary in the Bible. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred thirty years, and he died. Adam dies at 930 and you think, wow, what a long life. I mean, in our, in our culture now, in our day, if you live to be 85 or 90, we think that that's incredible. You might think, wow, that's, that's neat that he lived that long. But this is the first recorded death by natural causes. This wasn't, a, this wasn't a, a, an amazing thing. I don't think his family was saying, wow, Adam lived so long. They had literally centuries to watch him age and see the effects of sin over this long period of time god always keeps his word sin wasn't some sort of distant memory that we can just act like is not there it was a haunting crouching tiger waiting to pounce i'm always amazed when i've gotten to share the gospel with older people i'm always amazed that they don't have a fear of their own mortality that they don't have a fear and i'll ask them you know how old are you right now i'm 65 do you realize you maybe have a decade on this earth to decide what your eternity is going to be? I mean, that's a, that's a phenomenal thought. But people act like sin is just, it's something for other people. It's something you talk about at church. It's not a part of my life. Just a little side note here. This is interesting to me. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. This wasn't a collection of stories that Moses heard from his grandfather. Um, it was written it was handed down, I believe, from Adam through his descendants all the way down to Noah, maybe carrying it on the ark. And some feel that Adam wrote up to about this point in the book. It was ultimately compiled by Moses, I believe, in, as an inspired text. Um, whether or not it's exactly or not doesn't make any difference. Moses wrote Genesis, but he had, uh, I believe, uh, things in writing already. The detail is, is phenomenal. Now, could God just simply tell Moses directly every single detail? Absolutely. But I think it's key that it says this is the book of the generations of Adam. And what's interesting to me is that Jesus is called by Paul, the second Adam, the last Adam. By the first Adam, sin enters the world. By the last Adam, we're saved from our sin. This little section ends, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Matthew 1.1 starts the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And there's, there's similarities there. Same start as Genesis 5.1. So just some introductory notes. I want to spend most of our time, though, talking about the qualities of the line of Seth. And I think by the time we're done, you'll just see they're so different than Cain. And we'll do six of them. The first quality is that they represented a new beginning. They represented a new beginning In verse 25, Adam and Eve get another offspring, literally another seed, another son. And it indicates their belief that the promised Messiah would come through Seth. I believe that's what they believed. Seth is the substitution. He's the new life after the tragedy of losing Cain to sin and Abel to death. And this is important because it says that God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. But we also see... In chapter 5, verse 4, that Adam had other sons and daughters. For some reason, he believed Seth was the replacement, that he is the substitute. And I think he was right. Because through the line of Seth, ultimately Messiah would come. You notice that God doesn't leave them hanging. That Cain doesn't kill Abel and God doesn't just say, wow, Adam and Eve, that's that's kind of sad. Well, have a nice life. He makes a replacement. He makes a substitute. He doesn't let them wonder if God will be faithful to them. There's a classic illustration of God's faithfulness to give a new beginning from J. Oswald Sanders. And you may have heard this story, but I love this story. In the mid-1800s, there was a famous painting, painting hung in an art gallery. It was called The Chess Player. And it's a, it's a painting that shows Satan playing chess with a young man. And the devil has just made his move and the young man is in checkmate. And the young man shows his face is in despair and defeat i've seen this painting and it's a it's a phenomenal work of art and you can see the chessboard and it's in checkmate well at that time in the mid-1800s the unofficial chess champion of the world was a guy by the name of paul morphy and he went and he looked at this painting he just stared at it for a while and all of a sudden he got really excited and he told somebody bring me a chessboard bring me a chessboard and he set up the pieces exactly right and he sat in the place of the young man, and he made the move that got him out of the checkmate. It wasn't actually a checkmate, because apparently the painter knew less about chess than uh, the chess master did. But the line of Seth is the new beginning that Adam and Eve didn't think they would have. I mean, Abel was the priest of the family. He was the one representing them before God, making sacrifice, but Seth is the replacement. He gives them a new beginning. You know, I've, I've heard this in counseling more times than I can think about and wished it a few times in my own life. This phrase, I wish I could start over. You ever feel like you wish you could do something over again? I've been preaching messages where halfway through I think, man, I wish I could rewind this. This is not going well at all. And when my wife is going like this, you know, or this means closing prayer. Um, you go, okay, just, we just got to be done. With, with Cain, you remember how many times God offered him a new beginning? Five times, over and over again, Cain, repent, 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 repent. But he rejected the offer of forgiveness every time. But in Seth, Adam and Eve are given a new beginning. They're they're given hope that through him, a Messiah would come. So the line of Seth, they represent a new beginning. Another quality of this family is that they demonstrated internal humility. They demonstrated internal humility, not an external religiosity, Internal humility. Seth had a son, and he named him Enosh. It's a word that means mortal frailty or one who breaks. So it's he's he is recognized as one who is mortal, who ails from sin. He's frail, he's completely dependent upon God, the provision for provision of salvation. Now why is that important? Because you compare him to Cain. Cain had a son, he builds a city For him and names it after him and ascribes to him greatness, almost like deity. But Seth recognized the frail condition of his son, and if he had read Proverbs, Proverbs didn't exist yet, but if he had, he would have resonated with the verse that says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. He would have understood that. A wise parent teaches your children, you teach them to be humble. You have to force them at first. We always gave our kids a choice. Either you humble yourself or I will humble you. Those are your two options. Those are the options that God gives us. You don't let a child get away with being indignant at punishment. If you punish a small child and they're indignant and angry about it, you keep punishing until they're humble. You don't let them be indignant because that makes it worse. You insist on repentance. As children get older, you continue to teach them to have a humble attitude Because, here's what happens, as kids get older, and we have some here, some teenagers, you start developing skills and abilities, and you look in the mirror, and wow, I have muscles now, I'm not that skinny little kid I used to be, and all of a sudden, you start to tend to think pretty highly of yourselves. And there's a bumper sticker that says, hire a teenager while they still know everything. (laughs) You teach them to be humble, You teach them that they don't know what they think they know, the line of Seth, though, is characterized by humility. They demonstrated an internal humility. Another quality that exhibited that was exhibited in this family is they demonstrated genuine worship of God. They demonstrated or exhibited genuine worship of God. They weren't just religious. Chapter 4, verse 26. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is personal worship. This is seeking God from a position of need and dependence. They worshiped the way that they'd been taught. They brought sacrifice. They brought sacrifice by faith. They brought sacrifice by faith, looking for covering for their sin. They were hoping and looking for a future Savior. Uh, Somebody asked me last night, where did they offer sacrifice? I think the best idea uh, that I've heard is that, you remember when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, cherubim with flaming swords are put at the entrance so that you can't enter. And without getting into a whole lot of issues about temple theology, that makes the most sense, that that would be where you go to sacrifice. You go to the place where God's presence is revealed on earth, but you can't get in. You can't go. You can't go anymore. You have to have a sacrifice. You have to have a mediator. And it's very interesting that on the mercy seat, on the ark, what's on the ark guarding the presence of God it's the cherubim uh, on there and so um, that would be kind of the temple on earth that's not we're not certain about that but that makes the most sense that's why the text earlier said that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord that the place on earth that God revealed his presence specifically to worship him he went away from that and he left they worshiped the way they've been taught bringing sacrifice by faith and apparently, each successive generation after Seth saw their parents seeking after God. Certainly not 100% of the time. And we know that the faithfulness of this family dwindled until eventually there was just Noah. But generally speaking, the line of Seth were faithful. They were worshipers of Yahweh, not the line of Cain. The line of Cain weren't at all. They were characterized by what many of the Psalms speak of, the seeking of God. I love Psalm 63, 1. O oh God... You are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts after you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You know, that's a great verse to read to the nominal Christian, the one who says, that, yeah, sure, I, I'm saved, I go to church God, once a month, and and uh, my, my faith is okay. Just ask them this. Is God your God? Are you earnestly seeking Him? Do you, does your soul thirst after Him? Do you have a hunger for Him? Because the the faker will ultimately have to say, no, not really. You know, that's that's for the real religious. That's for the disciples. How many paths are there? How many types of men? Just two. And they're widely divergent. There's nobody in between. Psalm 70, verse 4, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. So, so and so, when was the last time you just rejoiced? in the Lord that you absolutely loved what he's done for you that you've loved your salvation so much so that you've said God is great and you've praised him as a result when somebody's just living a life that's just kind of namby-pamby pseudo-cultural Christianity I just I I guess as I get older I get more blunt and I just tell them I don't think you're saved because saved people rejoice and love their salvation is that guy coming close He coming towards us this will be a challenge. I'm going to yell. He's going that way. We've got to cut that out of the recording. For those listening to the recording, there's a helicopter coming. So they were, they were true worshipers. They worshiped Yahweh. When you have to let me put it this way, uh, how many of you here have invited somebody to Grace Bible Church? There you go. Now, Okay, now put them back up. How many of you here have invited somebody to Grace Bible Church and have them kind of go, yeah, maybe. There we go. Yes. I would love sometime to ask somebody, and I've done this, ask them, why are you so hesitant to want to go worship God? What's your hesitation? Because that's a great gospel question. Why are you hesitant? Because the Lord says he'll bless those who seek after him. Here's another quality of Seth's family. They viewed humanity from God's perspective. They viewed humanity from God's perspective. They believed in an inherited sin nature No self-righteousness, no works-based merit before God. There's a key verse here that tells us this. Chapter 5, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, does that just mean that Seth looked like Adam and not like Eve? Oh, look, he's got your nose and he's got your ears. I don't think so. This is a direct contrast to the fact that God made man in his image. He made us like him. Originally, how was man made? Completely without sin. But in this case, Adam has a son in his image. Adam, who is now a sinner. And they understand that he had a sin nature. And certainly after seeing the episode with Cain and Abel, they understood this. Romans 5.12 therefore just as one man that's adam sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned my guess is that romans 5 12 is not adam's favorite verse in the bible that that's him i mean what a what what a thought that every believer going to heaven i always imagine that adam is at the gates of heaven all the jokes say that peter is i always imagine that adam is at the gates of heaven Greeting everybody coming in. Sorry about that cancer, car accident, sorry, my fault. You know, sorry about the diabetes. I know that was awful. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Four marriages, sorry about that. You know, that's awful. But it all it all rested on him. He was our federal head. And now he himself knowing that it was his fault, he fathers a son in his own image. Grace isn't inherited. It isn't genetic. And for you younger people here who have parents and grandparents who love the Lord, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't get you a single point with God. Corruption is inherited. When a sinner gives birth to a sinner, we understand that. The problem is is that saints give birth to sinners also. There are no saints giving birth to saints. From a purely human standpoint, a parent who doesn't convey the fact of sin to his children what you're doing is you're setting up a child to be Cain, not to be a Seth. Setting up a child to believe the lie of his own wonderfulness, his own works, his own deeds. I mean that's that that is a common parenting tactic today is make sure your children believe they're the greatest thing ever. That that's not correct. Now you don't you don't tell your kids, obviously, you know you're a you're a little wretch from the pit of hell and you're just like Cain. You no, know, we're not gonna do that either. What do you do say? You say, you have a sin problem, and we gave it to you. Dad and mom gave it to you, and we're sorry, but the solution is the same for all of us. We got it from our fathers who got it from their fathers, and you got it from us. And you have to find the same solution that we found, and that is in Christ Jesus. So this family understood they had a proper view of human nature. The fifth quality we see in this family is they enjoyed the delight of God. They enjoyed the delight of God. When we compare the genealogy of Cain to Seth, as I mentioned earlier, Seth's family is just given more detail. We're told how long each man lived. When you, in, in Scripture, when you say how long a man lived, generally speaking, that's a way of giving him honor, of giving him preferential treatment, that you are honoring his life, that he lived this long. God delights in those who place their faith in him. The text of scripture is inspired by God. It is written by the Holy Spirit. And God has honored these men by saying, this is how long they lived on the earth. I love this story in Matthew 26, 7 and following, when a woman comes to Jesus with an alabaster vial of costly perfume and she pours it on his head. Remember what Jesus said? He said, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. The Lord honors those who honor him, and he remembers those who remember him. Proverbs 10:7 The memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. Psalm 18 says that God saves us because he delights in us. It's a a wonderful concept. Psalm 35 says to give praise to the Lord because he is the one who delights in the welfare of his servant. What a wonderful thing to be in a family and to tell your kids if you will come to faith in God and under our understanding from the New Testament now, we have greater revelation, come to faith in God through Jesus Christ, the ultimate one-time sacrifice, you will enjoy the delight of God. Right now, those who aren't saved are not enjoying the delight of God. They're enjoying the coming wrath of God. That's all they have to look forward to. But to switch over from God's wrath to God's delight. what What a wonderful thing. All of you here as men, you can understand this in particular. You can understand some of you had this, some of you didn't have it, but you all understand what it means to have your dad say, I'm proud of you. I love you. I care about you. I mean, we live for that moment. I've seen men in their 50s cry when they get a card from their dad saying, I'm proud of you, son. And it's an amazing thing. As a believer in Christ, the Lord delights in us. He has a delight. And he says, I'm so glad you're mine. So glad that you're my child. You know, Eve ascribed her blessing in having a child as being from God. In chapter 4, verse 1, she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Um, some people say, well, God didn't reveal his name till he told it to Moses. That's not true. It says here, I've gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. This is the first time in the Bible that I've seen that a human uses the name of God. He had delighted in Adam and Eve such that he told them his name and she used it to bless him for his delight in her. So does God delight in your life? Absolutely. If you're one of his, if you know Christ as your savior, He delights in you, and you convey that to your wife, convey that to your children, convey that to your grandchildren. Be the one in whom God delights. Don't be the one in whom he is going to pour his wrath. Only two kinds of men. Well, the final quality of a godly family of Seth's line is they proclaimed their faith in God. They proclaimed their faith in God. 2 Peter 2, 5 says, if God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, and then he calls him a herald of righteousness, a preacher of righteousness. Noah is listed as the 10th generation from Adam. Their faith in Yahweh had been passed down from patriarch to patriarch, from man to man. I would argue that each of them that's listed here in the genealogy of Seth, they had the responsibility to proclaim faith in Yahweh, to proclaim true faith. We get little glimpses of clues that tell us this. Not much, but enough to give us an idea. Jude tells us that Enoch was a prophet. He must have been a pretty good prophet. He must have been a guy who was devoted to the Lord. Verse 24 says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Some sort of special, um, special dispensation there for Enoch to be treated that way. Kenan had a boy. He named him Mahalalel, which means God be praised. Now, what does a little kid do? As they get older, they say, why did you name me this? What does this mean? And to tell them, to tell your son, your name means God be praised. What a wonderful legacy for him. Lamech had a son, and he named him Rest or Relief, Noah. And it even says why here. He made a prophecy over him. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now remember, these are these are agrarian men. They are living out the curse every day. The curse of God is that you will live by the sweat of your brow. No power tools, no help. Every bit of food that you find, you have to grow. You have to dig it out of the ground. You have to fight the thorns and the briars. And in their case, for hundreds of years. I mean, living a hand-to-mouth existence. I would imagine that after 500 years, having to harvest your lunch every day would just get old. You think... Wouldn't I like to just drive through once and have somebody else serve me? So they they lived a painful, toil-filled life. It seems that there was some sort of hope that Noah would be the Messiah promised in Genesis 3.15. We're not told any other detail, but it seems they had that hope. There's a sense in which it came true, though. Noah would be the instrument of condemning the world. He preached righteousness for a century, and the world didn't respond They didn't respond, and there wasn't a single convert except in his own family. If you do the the math and the genealogies here, one of the reasons I tend to to believe this is an exact genealogy is that uh, by the time the flood came, none of Noah's predecessors, even Methuselah, uh, were alive uh, at that point. So, what would they proclaim? I mean, what was their message? They didn't have a Bible. What did they proclaim? If we put together what they knew, we can put together their gospel message and see if it sounds familiar. They worshiped and they sacrificed together, explaining the need for a sacrifice. That would be the first element. They explained the need for a sacrifice. Certainly, they would tell others about Adam and Eve and the fall, how they used to live in Eden. And it may even be that there was actually a place they could point to where Eden was or used to be. So what are they doing? They're going back and they're proclaiming a right anthropology, a right view of man. Adam and Eve used to be um, perfected, but they fell in sin. What else would they proclaim? Well, they would proclaim that God gave a promise that the seed of a woman would crush the head of the serpent. And certainly they knew about the serpent. They knew about Satan in some form. They had some understanding. What would they tell them then? That there's a coming Savior that would set them free from the curse of death. We know this is the message that got passed down because Lamech believed Noah was that guy. And what did he say? That he will set us free. He will bring us relief or rest. So he even names him rest. I think probably they passed down the story of Cain and Abel as well. We know this from Cain's line. Remember he told his wives, Adah and Zillah, he said... He said, watch out, I'm ten times worse than Cain. This is five generations later. They knew about Cain and Abel. That story was passed down of a man who worshipped God in contrition on one side, Abel, and a man who would not bend the knee to the Lord, Cain. So in, in Seth's line, the business of seeking the lost wasn't just for the preacher. The whole family, they were all preachers of righteousness. They were preachers of a true salvation, an internal work of faith. And you contrast this with Cain's family. Whether they live for? They lived for the new house, for the new car, for the new wives, for the new conquests. They were trying to do everything to make the curse seem less bad than it really was. But the line of Seth, their children saw that their fathers were waiting for a Messiah. And that was clearly passed down. Waiting for relief for the curse, Cain's family, comfortable with the curse, reveling in the curse, trying to live and take advantage of what they saw as the advantages of the curse. The curse to them was was free license to sin and to do so proving that might makes right. You think Cain is bad? I'm worse. I kill men just for insulting me. Don't cross me. Very, very different. The family of Seth, though, they they love God. They worship God. They teach their children to do so. They're actively involved in the ministry of God's word, his kingdom. And God showed his delight in them. I, I don't think that the line of Seth could imagine that thousands of years would pass before Messiah would come and then thousands of more years before Messiah would come again. I and mean, they didn't have a clue about that. Every generation that came, they thought maybe, maybe this is it. Maybe this is when the Savior will come. Cain and Abel, most likely, you know, they, they, they either played together or they worked together. They knew each other, certainly their brothers, but their paths grew wider and wider until one killed the other one, and now one represents the line of sin, the other represents the line of righteousness. Seth being in the same line as uh, the type of Abel, his line completely different than Cain and his line. Whether we see in the line of Cain? He's a rebel who was offered multiple chances to repent, but he turned his face away from God. He was continually stiff-necked and ultimately became the ancestor of cruel men who threatened their wives, murdered young boys, and ultimately became the reason for the flood. The line of Cain. Contrast that with Seth. What were they like? New beginning. Demonstrated internal humility. Genuine worship of God. They had a correct view of humanity from God's perspective. They enjoyed the delight of God in them, and they proclaimed their faith in God. I don't think you can argue at all that they're somehow the type of nominal Christian. I don't believe that. You're either in Christ and you rejoice in your salvation and you worship God with those qualities or you're out. Nobody in between. Nobody in that middle ground. A guy told me once, you know, I'm not against God. I'm just neutral. I'm just kind of neutral. The Bible knows no neutrality. And so convey that to your wives, convey that to your kids, convey that to your grandchildren. They're are no neutral parties. You're either with God or you're what? You're against Him. And it's by default. Let me just close with this. Let me tell you what the Bible says about God's attitude toward a rebel and then His attitude toward those who have repented. Here's what God's attitude is toward a rebel. Wrath, fury, anger, loathing, hatred, indignation, lake of fire, weeping, gnashing of teeth. No evil man will go unpunished. God will break the neck of the stiff-necked. The disobedient will cry to me, and yet I will not listen. He says, send them from my presence. Depart from me, I never knew you. I will summon a sword against the earth. God is impartial to men in his judgment. Jesus said, you brew the vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? He describes an unquenchable fire, day and night, everlasting contempt, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, a resurrection of judgment. It is terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God. They're drinking the wine of the wrath of God, drinking the cup of his fury, tormented with fire and brimstone. That's one type of man. There's only one other type. What the Bible says about the Abels and the Seths, God will exult over you in joy. He will love you in quietness. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He surrounds you with favor as with a shield. The upright will behold his face. He rescued you because he delights in you. God himself will dwell among his people. We're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb and we are the bride of God. We are a kingdom of priests. We have confidence in the day of judgment. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who God possesses. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. We're members of God's household, citizens of heaven, adopted sons of God. We are the ones who are called commended by God. Jesus said, I have called you my friend. God writes his name upon us. He has given us of his spirit. He first loved us. We abide in him and he in us. We're children of God by his great love. He made us alive in Christ when we were dead in our sin. He loves those who pursue righteousness. We're precious in his sight. And he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. No way are there people between that. No way. (coughs) Cultural Christianity wants us to believe that there are degrees of faith. There are the super committed Believers and the nominal, really not too into the faith, but I'm still a Christian believers. Scripture doesn't show that. The path of the unrighteous, the path of the righteous, radically different and literally leads to an eternity apart. Massively different at every level. Well, what's our response? Well, first of all, be in the line of Seth. Be there. You know, my grandmother gathered uh, all of her family one time when I was a teenager, and we all met together. And she pled with her children and with her grandchildren and many great-grandchildren in there. And she said, I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to heaven soon. And with tears in her eyes, she said, I want all of you to be there. Be there. I don't want to miss a single one of you. So the first response is be there. And, and do what Paul told the leaders in the Corinthian church to do. Examine yourselves, test yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. The second response is, don't live like the guy who pretends to be in the middle. That's a shame. That's a shame. Be all in for Jesus Christ and demonstrate that to your family. Let me just ask you a question. Without revealing any positives or negatives, one way or another, how many of you here today have some sort of impression in your mind as to how your father Related to God, whether good or bad. How many of you here have an impression of that? Every time you look at your kids and your grandchildren, don't forget that. Because in 40 years, they're going to be sitting on these rocks. And some guy's going to ask them, how many of you here remember how your father and your grandfather walked with the Lord? They're going to all raise their hands. So you live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Ask forgiveness of your children, your grandchildren. When you sin in front of them, demonstrate what repentance is. Demonstrate your faith in Christ. Talk about the Lord all the time. Don't be the guy who says, well, I'll just live my faith silently. There's no such thing. God gave you a mouth. This this is quoted so often, and it shouldn't be. Uh, Francis of Assisi saying, Proclaim the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That's ridiculous. Proclaim the gospel at all times, and especially use your words. Talk about the Lord. Lead your family. Tell them, we are in a special line Because who are you spiritually descended from? You're spiritually descended from Seth. And so we're to act like it and do so at a massively different level. Every time you get up on a Sunday morning and say, ah, we can skip church, no problem. What did you just tell your kids? The worship of God is optional. You'll drag your carcasses to work to make a dime. When you have the flu, when you have all kinds of things and you wake up and one child has a sniffly nose, oh, whole family better skip church. No, be there. Demonstrate the line of Seth. So it's, it's great being with guys because you can just be direct and punch you in the face. And we love that. And that's good. But the fact is, um, if we did a count here, all of you represent spiritual leadership to one, two, three, five. If you have grandchildren, a dozen people. There are hundreds of people in the church of these guys right here. You have to demonstrate the line of Seth. There's only one generation, you're only one generation away from uh, complete apostasy. You know that? You have to lead your kids to Christ. They have to lead theirs to Christ. It's our responsibility. Well, I hope the next time you read through Genesis and you get to chapter four and five, you'll remember, wow, two completely divergent lines and that'll stick in your heart and mind. What a wonderful example for us right at the beginning of scripture. Well, let me pray for us and then uh, Grant probably has some closing comments. Father, it's, it's my genuine hope that our time this morning has served to give us a deep contrast. We're up here on this beautiful mountain, enjoying one another, enjoying good food, enjoying recreation. But Lord, we're going to drive down the mountain and there is an expectation of an example to be set. And I pray, Lord, for every one of these men to be men that Seth would be proud of. Because those men, they lived every day in hope of a Messiah. They lived every day in hope that the Savior would come. And we have so much more. The Savior has come. And he's literally sent his spirit to live in our hearts. We have infinitely more than Seth ever had. And yet, Lord, so often we act like Cain. So let us, Lord, as the Apostle Paul commanded us in Ephesians, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to walk in a manner that's pleasing to you and to be Seth's, to be Methuselahs, to be Noahs, to be proclaimers of righteousness, the preachers of the gospel, to those in our sphere of influence, to do so with boldness, to live a life that's pleasing, to speak the gospel, and to do so in a way that impacts the next generation radically so that we might pass on the truth of the faith until the Savior does come for the second time and the final time. How we look forward to that, Lord. May we be men who strive for that day.